Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Church. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. We're going to continue our study of the book of Jonah, and today we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. And when you think about Jonah, really when you think about the entire body of Scripture, there are a lot of accounts in the Bible where God supernaturally acts in the lives of people, where he acts in human life, where he acts in nature, and he acts in many ways that are very hard to believe, but they're amazing to read about and to understand the purpose of what God was doing. And in the Old Testament, which is, of course, where we found ourselves in the book of Jonah, in the Old Testament, God sends plagues upon Egypt. He judges the Egyptians for their wickedness and insolence as they were holding God's people in bondage. The Lord parts the Red Sea so that Israel can cross on dry ground. He covers a mountain with a thunderous storm cloud that declares his presence and his glory. And among many, many other miracles, we read that he even gives a donkey the ability to speak for just a brief moment. Now, all of these are spectacular, and they tell us things about God's power and might and sovereignty. But there's one miraculous event of sorts in the Old Testament that has perplexed people since it was written, and that's the story of Jonah being swallowed by a great sea creature, this great fish, and staying in its mouth, staying in its belly, if you will, for three days and three nights. It just seems a little unbelievable. Last Sunday, of course, we started our look at the book of Jonah, and after the service, Mr. Pageant and I were talking after the service, and he shared with me a funny little story that I felt like I needed to share with all of you. It's a story of a little school-aged girl who was talking to her teacher about whales. And at one point in the discussion, the teacher remarked that it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow an entire human being because even though the whale was a very, very large mammal, its throat was very small. The little girl who had spent a lot of time in church and under good, some good Sunday school teachers raised her hand and said, but the whale swallowed Jonah, she insisted. And so the teacher becomes a little irritated that her authority was questioned, and she reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible, she said. The little girl responded, well, when I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah. And the teacher, not satisfied with that conclusion, snapped back and said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl, not missing a beat, replied, well, then you can ask him. We left off last week with this spectacular event taking place. And to summarize, when we opened up the book of Jonah, this very, very short book that's just about a page and a half long, the book of Jonah, we learned, is not a story of a prophecy and prophecies like many of the other prophetic books are, but it's the story of a prophet. Jonah had been asked by God to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great and wicked city. It's evil, we read, had come up before God, and Jonah was asked to go preach to them and call them to repentance. Now, Jonah does not want to go, and so he begins this effort to run away from God and run away from the call of God. So he boards a ship to travel as far away from Nineveh as possible at the time, and he was going to go to a place called Tarshish. Now, while on the ship, God sends a storm, and two things become very obvious— the sailors on the ship are going to die if something doesn't change in this horrible, horrible storm. And God's wrath at Jonah is the cause of this storm. The storm had come because of Jonah. And so the author of Jonah paints 
a very vivid contrast here. The compassion of the pagan sailors, they have it for Jonah. They care about Jonah because Jonah says, just throw me overboard, and they don't do that immediately. They, In fact, they take every step they possibly can before they throw Jonah overboard. So we have the compassion of these pagan, irreligious sailors, or at least true absence of true religion, and this is contrasted with the cold, callous indifference that Jonah, who was supposed to be the true prophet of God, the cold, callous indifference that Jonah had towards the sailors in the Ninevites. And so finally, in a last-ditch, desperate act, Jonah is thrown overboard headlong into the darkness of the sea. And on the deck of the ship, the pagan sailors come to faith in the one true God of the universe, while the prophet who has been entrusted with the message of redemption sinks into the bottomless deep. But then... There is an act of grace. Right at the end of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, we read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's interesting. In Jonah 1, the theme is Jonah running from God and God's commands. In Jonah 2, it's about Jonah running into God. It's not so much that Jonah runs to God, but as God puts himself in Jonah's path and Jonah runs into him. Now, I'm not trying to play word games here, but there is a very subtle but immensely important difference in those things. Some people, when they experience tragedy, trials, darkness, or hardship, God will use these moments to turn people toward him and they will voluntarily turn to God even if it's in an act of desperation. For others, however, they still continue to live their lives with clenched fists toward God. But the Lord, in continued acts of mercy and continued acts of grace and his desire to draw all people to him, will continue to put on the pressure to mold and to make those whom he loves to run in to him. God indeed will break us to bring us to him. And so God is going to put himself in Jonah's way for a head-on collision. So in Jonah 2, it's a very short chapter. It's a prayer, and we're going to read this prayer that we're given as the, in the form of a poem and see what we can learn from God's word. This is Jonah 2, 10 verses. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you, God, heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation 
belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So we begin this first with the close of Jonah 1, because it's the seamless transition that happens here. This great fish is appointed to swallow Jonah. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this. Some question if this could happen as the Bible said it did, but certainly it's not a great thing for God to prepare a fish to do this, even if this was a special particular fish created for this very moment. Now, we don't, contrary to popular belief, we don't know what kind of fish this was. We often think of it as a whale, and despite the goofy little story that I opened with, it is possible for a whale to swallow a human or for a human to fit inside the mouth of a whale. In fact, certainly a modern sperm whale was large enough, is large enough for a grown human man to fit in its mouth. So technically, it is possible, but the author is also clear here that there are a couple of things that are happening in this moment. One, this is a miraculous event. Occasionally, some people have asked me, do you really believe that this happened, or is it just allegorical? And while I certainly do believe that there are things in the Bible that are allegorical, my answer is I absolutely do believe that this event happened. Despite the outlandishness of, seeming outlandishness of this moment, God shows his sovereign control over his creation. You see, Jonah was, there's a literary thing happening here. Jonah was being over the top with his reaction to God's call. So God will, if you will, be over the top with his reaction. And while it is helpful sometimes to think about how God might have performed these miracles in naturalistic ways, I don't need a naturalistic explanation to explain a supernatural event. It is enough for me to trust, certainly, that this just happened. And so Jonah finds himself here in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. He was rebellious, resistant, but he was a believer, and God was not finished with him yet. So God is choosing to preserve the life of Jonah. Now certainly God could have rescued Jonah in any number of ways here, but he he chooses this specific way because of the effect that it was going to have on Jonah's heart. It's beautiful for me to think about this, that God knows you and God knows me better than anyone else knows you or knows me. He knows the inclinations of our hearts. He knows our desires. He knows our flaws. And he loves us despite all of this. He loves us indeed despite ourselves. And this is a very distinguishing feature and revelation of the Christian faith, a belief of the Christian faith. It's foundational. It's the revelation that the God of the Bible, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ that we serve is a personal God, not a cosmic clockmaker who in an enormous time past wound things up and then set things in motion and is now removed from his creation, but rather a loving God who is deeply and intimately involved in the world and particularly among those whom he has created in his image, you and I. And the book of Jonah shows us important principles about the sovereignty of God. Namely, what happens when God wants a person to do something, but that person doesn't want to do it? Well, this story of Jonah shows us that God has a way of bringing people to the place where God wants us to be. But I want to make another distinguishment here between believers followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, true believers, and non-believers. 
you know, God makes it clear to us in the Bible that he, that God seeks us. We do not seek God. Now, bear with me for just a moment here because there is some biblical proof of this. In fact, it's one of the most clear teachings in the Bible. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. King David wrote in Psalm 14 that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. But God in his love and in acts of mercy and grace seeks after us. He pursues us because he loves us and wants to restore that glorious relationship between his creation and the creator. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and our need for God. And Jesus puts this beautifully in one of the most visceral images in the entire Bible as he shares the parable of the lost sheep. He tells his listeners, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one who went astray? And when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You know, we hear a lot of churches use the term seeker-friendly. I've probably used that phrase before. And now I understand what that means, and frankly, most of the time I believe that the intentions are good and pure to create a welcoming and comfortable environment for people to come to church, and particularly unchurched people. But the Bible teaches us that there is none that seek God on their own. Now, the logical question will be, you know, Chris, I've encountered people that seem to be searching, that seem to have questions, and that's true. So we have to ask, well, what about those that are searching? What about those who seem to be seeking answers? Well, there's two things that I would think about this. And first, I think it's great. I would encourage them to do that. And one is that God is likely impressing upon their heart their need for him and the realization of their lostness. And even if they don't realize it at the time, even if they never realize it, It is God pushing them to true faith in Christ. But I also like what the ancient church father Thomas Aquinas said about this, or the apologist Thomas Aquinas said about this. He said, the reason we think people are seeking after God when they're not is that they are desperately and earnestly seeking for those things that only God can give them, which are happiness, meaning, freedom from guilt, and peace, All of these benefits that accrue to those who put their faith in Christ. So from our perspective as Christians, we often say they're seeking the benefits that only God can give. Therefore, they must be seeking after God. But in fact, no, they're not seeking after God. They want the benefits of God without God. That's the dilemma. And so that's where we must come in to point people not to the benefits of following Christ, but to point people to the person and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jonah was already a believer, but he had fled fellowship with God. But God did not give up on Jonah. He stays there for three days and three nights. Now, this is one of those blink and you miss it sort of things. Jonah didn't pray when he was swallowed by this great sea creature. In fact, 
He does nothing, it seems, for three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. He did not pray immediately. It took three days of total darkness in the depths of the waters before Jonah prayed to God. It takes a long time to break pride. Pride, that pinnacle sin, the final boss battle, if you will, in our carnal, fleshly self that must be defeated. But finally, Jonah prays. And he says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. So Jonah finally has some good theology here as he prays to God. Jonah knew God heard him before the answer came. He says, I cried out to the Lord. And in the rest of this chapter, Jonah's prayer uses a lot of phrases and figures of speech from the Psalms. So Jonah knew the word of God. He quotes Psalm 18, Psalm 42, and Psalm 31. And as I said, he finally starts to have some good theology points here. And the first one is, he says, you, God, you cast me into the deep. Jonah realized that it wasn't the sailors who cast him into the sea. It was God. It was God himself. Jonah saw that he had never been out of God's hands despite his best efforts to run from him and to put distance between himself and God. Jonah's second good theology point is, he says, You have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah believed God would bring rescue and salvation. God knew, or excuse me, Jonah knew that God was still with him despite being in the pit of the earth. In fact, the word used here, Sheol, is that Jonah indeed was in hell. In good uh, theology point three, Jonah declares his commitment to God. Jonah here says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Jonah's references to idols likely in his heart initially was referring to the sailors from the ship who, unknown to Jonah because he was now in the sea, had come to faith in true God. They had come to true religion. But even more significantly, Jonah had made his own will, his own purpose, really his own life, his idol. And particularly in the West, and just to define what I'm saying here, when I say the West, I mean uh, the majority of Europe and the United States of America, Canada, North America, countries that are heavily influenced by Western culture, particularly in the West, we rarely see people bowing down to actual physical idols made of gold or silver or wood. Rather, we bow down to ourselves, if you will. We become the idol. There is a form of self-worship here, of self-divinity. And Jonah realizes that in resisting God, running from him, that he indeed, Jonah himself, was being an idolater. And so Jonah promises to pay his vows to God and do whatever God wants him to do. You know, we don't know this for sure, but given Jonah's status as a prophet, it's highly probable that at one time, Jonah had probably said what many of us have said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And now Jonah realized that in order to do that, he had to stop resisting God and pay his vows, so to speak, to the Lord. And then good theology point four, salvation is of the Lord. This was more than just a statement of fact. It was a triumphant declaration that Jonah made. Jonah knew that salvation was from the Lord from him personally and for his people. That was good. 
But Jonah would still struggle with the idea that God's salvation was for all, for any, who would accept it. God was revealing to Jonah the much grander picture that salvation is not just exclusive to a nation or a race or a language, but it is to all, and salvation is of the Lord. And so at the end of Jonah 2, it seems that Jonah has repented, but it's perhaps not the clean, ideal repentance that we hope to see. Jonah still harbored tremendous angst for the Ninevites and anger in his heart, even though he was going to do what God would ask him to do or had asked him to do, albeit reluctantly. Which leads us to ask this question, what is true repentance? Repentance. We use that word a lot, as we ought, in Christian circles. Repentance, though, is more than just a one-time event. It begins at one time, but then it continues to grow and mature. It's a process. True Christian repentance involves heartfelt conviction of sin brought about by the Holy Spirit, a remorse over this offense to God, a turning away from a sinful way of life, and turning towards a God-honoring lifestyle. And so after Jonah's prayer, things continue in motion. The Lord, this is, this is interesting, the Lord spoke to the fish. So this fish was working at the command of God, and this is interesting. It vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, that's a very strong, even edgy word, vomited Jonah. Jonah didn't have a choice how he was going to be delivered here. He might have preferred another method, but he's vomited by this fish upon draw on dry land, it's continuing to really kind of show the disgust, even by the fish, of Jonah. Now, please don't make the mistake of thinking that Jonah has fully seen the light here. There's progress, but they're still disgust with Jonah's action. And so Jonah's deliverance came after three days and three nights. And of course, that provided a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus' resurrection. Jesus references Jonah in Matthew 12, as he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. More about that later on, perhaps, but another reason why. I believe that this is true. So let's end up with a few of these timeless takeaways. One is an end result of sanctification is aligning our desires with God. What is sanctification? It's becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah was not at the end result yet. It was true. Jonah believed that God would save him personally. Jonah believed that God would save his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, but he did not want salvation to come to the Ninevites. He would go preach to them, but he did not want them to be saved. Paul tells us about God's intentions for all mankind in his letter to Timothy, where he urges that we pray for all who are in authority over us. And then he says, This is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, our prayers, your prayers, have a global and eternal impact. That's a beautiful, almost unbelievable reality that would be unbelievable if it wasn't codified in the pages of Scripture, that we pray for our leaders, we pray for the lost, and we seek this global revival, and that can be brought about by the faithful prayers of God's people, that our hearts should be so aligned with God that we want all people, yes, even our enemies, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Secondly, God will break us 
in order to use us. Jonah did recognize God as the source of salvation. He did agree to go to Nineveh. But now the story isn't over yet. Jonah still has some growth that needs to take place. But he finally admitted what the sailors on the ship had admitted, but with much less trauma. For sailors, for the sailors on the ship, it took a storm. For Jonah, it took a storm being thrown into the sea, facing certain death, being swallowed by a fish, and staying in Sheol, the depths of hell, for three days. For some, it takes a long time to be broken, but out of love, God will do it. The author of Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. A sign that we are actually in the love of God and in the will of God is that he disciplines us when we go astray. The modern view of love is allowing people to do whatever they want to do without question or without consequence. But friends, this isn't loving. In fact, it's the opposite of love, and it leads to anarchy and destruction. Speaking the truth in love is one of the most loving things that we can do. Certainly, Jonah didn't like or enjoy what was happening to him, but it was necessary for redemption. And then finally, God's will will be done. Try as Jonah tried. He would not thwart the will of God. Even today, history is moving toward an end, a point, and the will of God will be accomplished. The day of the Lord, as the Bible often speaks of it, is coming. And for some, that will be a day of terror. But for the redeemed, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, it will be a day of joy and glory. As Paul reminds us in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me, if you will, please. Heavenly Father, Jonah, as we often see in Scripture, is a cautionary tale for us, Lord, that we can become very closed to the idea that you desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God, help our hearts to be soft for the people that you have put in our path to minister. Help us to be able to lead them uh, and speak the truth to them, to lead them to faith in you, God. And Lord, use us for your glory here, Lord. And whatever it is that you're calling us to do, help us to not be resistant. And may we even put our hands down in defiance of what perhaps you were asking us to do so that we can serve you for the glory of God and the kingdom of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.